Chapter 14 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 14, The Private Cabinet of Sir Giles Mompesson. A small room, and rendered yet smaller by the numerous chests and strong boxes encroaching upon its narrow limits. In some cases these boxes are piled, one upon another, till they touch the ceiling. All of them look stout enough, yet many are further strengthened by iron hoops and broad-headed nails, and secured by huge padlocks. The door is cased with iron within and without, and has a ponderous lock, of which the master of the room always keeps the key, and never trusts it out of his own hand. This small chamber is the private cabinet of Sir Giles Mompesson. No one is permitted to enter it without him. Though his myrmidons are fully aware of its existence, and can give a shrewd guess at its contents, only two of them have set foot within it. The two thus privileged are Clement Lanier and Lupo Volp. Neither the promoter nor the scrivener are much in the habit of talking over their master's affairs, even with their comrades, and are almost as habitually reserved as he is himself. Still, from the few words let fall by them from time to time, the myrmidons have picked up a tolerable notion of the private cabinet, and of its hidden cupboards in the walls, its drawers with secret springs, its sliding planks with hollows beneath them, its chests full of treasure, or what is the same thing as treasure, bonds, mortgage deeds, and other securities, and its carefully concealed hoards of plate, jewels, and other valuables. Some of the least scrupulous among them, such as Staring, Hugh, Cutting Dick, and Old Tom Wooten, have often discussed the possibility of secretly visiting it, and making a perquisition of its stores, but they have been hitherto restrained by their fears of their terrible and vindictive master. On looking into the cabinet we find Sir Giles seated at a table, with a large chest open beside him, from which he has taken for examination sundry yellow parchments, with large seals attached to them. He is now occupied with a deed, on one of the skins of which the plan of an important estate is painted, and on this his attention becomes fixed. His countenance is cadaverous, and its ghastly hue adds to its grimness of expression. A band is tied round his head, and there is an expression of pain in his face, and an air of languor and debility in his manner, very different from what is usual with him. It is plain he has not yet recovered from the effects of the crushing blow he received at the jousts. Opposite him sits his partner, Sir Francis Mitchell, and the silence that has reigned between them for some minutes is first broken by the old usurer. "'Well, Sir Giles,' he inquires, "'are you satisfied with your examination "'of these deeds of the Munchensee property? "'The estates have been in the family, as you see, "'for upwards of two centuries, "'ever since the reign of Henry the Fourth, in fact, "'and you have a clear and undisputed title "'to all the property depicted on that plan, "'to an old hall with a large park around it, eight miles in circumference, "'and almost as well stocked with deer "'as the royal chase of Theobalds, "'and you have a title to other territorial domains "'extending from Munchensee Place and Park,' to the coast, a matter of twelve miles as the crow flies, Sir Giles, and including three manors and a score of little villages. Will not these content you? Methinks they should. If faith, my worthy partner, when I come to reckon up all your possessions, your houses and lands, and your different sources of revenue, the sums owing to you in bond and mortgage, your monopolies and your patents, when I reckon up all these, I say, and add thereunto the wealth hoarded in this cabinet, which you have not placed out at usance, I do not hesitate to set you down as one of the richest of my acquaintance. 
There be few whose revenue is so large as yours, Sir Giles. Tis strange, though I have had the same chance as yourself of making money, I have not a hundredth part of your wealth. Not a whit strange, replied Sir Giles, laying down the deed and regarding his partner somewhat contemptuously. I waste not what I acquire. I have passions as well as yourself, Sir Francis, but I keep them under subjection. I drink not, I riot not, I shun all idle company. I care not for outward show, or for the vanities of dress. I have only one passion which I indulge, revenge. You are a slave to sensuality, and pamper your lusts at any cost. Let a fair woman please your eye, and she must be bought, be the price what it may. No court prodigal was ever more licentious or extravagant than you are. Sir Giles, Sir Giles, I pray you spare me. My enemies could not report worse of me. Nay, your enemies would say that your extravagance is your sole merit, and that therein you are better than I, rejoined Sir Giles with a sardonic laugh. But I rejoice to think I am free from all such weaknesses. The veriest enchantress could not tempt me. I am proof against all female seductions. Think you the damsel lives who can induce me to give for her half these broad lands in Norfolk, this ancient hall and its widespread domains? I trow not. Perchance I have given too much, cried the old usurer eagerly. If so, it is not too late to amend our contract. Between us there should be fair dealing, Sir Giles. There is none other than fair dealing on my part, replied the extortioner sternly, and the terms of our agreement cannot be departed from. What I have just said applies to your general mode of life, but you have better reason for your conduct in this instance than is usual with you, since you combine the gratification of revenge with the indulgence of your other passions. You obtain a fair young bride, and at the same time deprive the person whom you hate most of all others of the mistress of his affections. This is as it should be. Vengeance cannot be too dearly purchased, and the more refined the vengeance, the higher must necessarily be the price paid for it. In no way can you so cruelly injure this detested Monchancy as by robbing him of his mistress. And the blow dealt by you shall be followed by others not less severe on my part. Ay, ay, Sir Giles, you have to wipe out the outrage he inflicted upon you in the tilt-yard. As I am a true gentleman, that was worse than the indignity I endured from him in the courtyard of the palace. It must be confessed that the villain hath a powerful hand as well as a sharp tongue, and follows up his bitter words by bold deeds. The stroke he dealt you with his sword was like a blow from a sledgehammer, Sir Giles. He felled you from your horse as a butcher felleth an ox, and, in good truth, I at first thought the ox's fate had been yours, and that you would never rise again. Your helmet was dinted in as if by a great shot, and for twelve hours and upwards you were senseless and speechless. But thanks to my care and the skill of Luke Hatton, the apothecary who tended you, you have been brought round. After such treatment, I cannot wonder that you are eager for revenge upon Sir Jocelyn. How will you deal with him, Sir Giles? How will you deal with him? I will hurl him from the proud position he now holds, replied the other, and immure him in the fleet. While I revel in the bliss he panted to enjoy, cried the old usurer, chuckling. Take it altogether, tis the sweetest scheme we ever planned, and the most promising, Sir Giles. But when am I to claim Aveline? When shall I make her mine? You shall claim her to-morrow, and wed her as soon after as you list. Nay, there shall be no delay on my part, Sir Giles. I am all impatience. When such a dainty repast is spread out before me, I am not likely to be a laggard. But now, to the all-important point on which the whole affair hinges, how am I to assert my claim to her hand? How enforce it when made? 
Explain that to me, Sir Giles, I beseech you. Readily, replied the extortioner. But before doing so, let me give you a piece of information which will surprise you, and which will show you that my tenure of this great Norfolk property is not quite so secure as you suppose it. You are aware that Sir Ferdinando Munchensey had a younger brother, Osmond, who disappeared when very young and died, it was concluded, interrupted Sir Francis, for he was never heard of more. And it was lucky for us he did so die, or he might have proved a serious obstacle to our seizure of these estates, for I remember it being stated at the time, by one of the judges, that had he been living, he might have procured a reversal of the Star Chamber sentence upon Sir Ferdinando in his favor. Precisely so, and that judge's opinion was correct, said Sir Giles. Now listen to me, Sir Francis. It is quite true that Osmond Munchensey quitted his home when very young, owing to some family quarrel. But it is not true that he died. On the contrary, I have recently ascertained, beyond a doubt, that he is still alive. Hitherto I have failed in tracing him out, though I have got a clue to him. But he has enveloped himself in so much mystery that he is difficult of detection. Yet I trust to succeed ere long, and my great business will be to prevent his reappearance, which would be fraught with danger to both of us. I have a scheme on foot in reference to him, which will answer more than one purpose. You will learn it anon. And now, to give you the explanation you require in respect to Aveline. And he stamped upon the floor. You are not about to invoke a spirit of darkness to our counsels, said Sir Francis, staring at him in astonishment and alarm. You will see, rejoined the extortioner with a grim smile. After a brief pause, the door was almost noiselessly opened, and Clement Lanier entered the chamber. What has Lanier to do with the matter? cried Sir Francis, suspiciously regarding the promoter, who was without his mask. You will hear, replied Sir Giles. Be pleased to inform Sir Francis, good Lanier, how you come to be in a position to demand the hand of fair Mistress Aveline Calvary? He demand it? I understand you not, Sir Giles, exclaimed the old usurer. Let him speak, I pray you, Sir Francis, returned the other. You will the sooner learn what you desire to know. End of chapter 14